Hello to all you Sunderland fans out there and hello to Phil Smith. Phil, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, very good, thank you. Starting to starting to come back to normality after the uh, unexpected madness of a play- another playoff campaign. So, yeah, all good. Indeed. We haven't spoken before this podcast, but I was taking a look at the analytics for the show over the past couple of episodes and nobody cares about our intros anymore. So intros are out and we're just going to jump straight into it. This is the Raw Podcast from the Sunderland Echo. I am James Copley and this is Phil Smith. Phil, um, breaking news today, uh, Edward Mishu and his immediate transfer future um, has become a lot clearer. What's going on and what do we now know? Yeah, I, I don't think it comes as a huge surprise in the end. Sunderland have confirmed today that um, they, they won't be taking up their option to buy clause um, on Edouard Michi, I suppose the significant thing is we have quotes from Christian Speakman saying it was a mutual decision between the two parties. I think it's probably something that we've come to expect over the last couple of weeks because I think everyone saw Michi's farewell to, to Sunderland supporters last week on social media and obviously you can never be clear, but it became pretty obvious from that that it was a farewell rather than the sort of see you soon obviously aligned with the fact that Joe Bellingham was at the Stadium of Light for the first leg of the Luton game. And the fact that that's a deal that seems to be advancing pretty significantly, I think it put Mishu's, those two things together, put Mishu's long-term future in fairly significant doubt. And so what we have today is official confirmation from the club that those talks have taken place and that the the mutual decision is that Mishu will, will return to PSG. Um, and I would imagine they'll then sort of assess his options before looking potentially to move elsewhere later in the summer. It's interesting, isn't it, Phil? Because I remember when news of the Mishu transfer story initially broke last summer, I think he was described as Sunderland's dream midfield signing. How true that is or not, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Um, but he came with good pedigree coming from PSG. We all saw him pictured with the likes of Lionel Messi and Mbappe and Ramos. Um, and then it had this clause in the contract, this optional fee that I think everyone, myself included, just sort of assumed that Sunderland would would take up at the end of the season. Obviously, that hasn't been the case, as you mentioned, a, a mutual decision. But how would you assess the journey from from him being Sunderland's quote unquote midfield dream midfield signing to that where both parties have have decided not to not to take it up? Yeah, I, I have slightly mixed feelings on it. I mean, I think that in I think that it's a shame, really, when you've essentially gone through the process of investing in a player and developing a issue because, you know, through that first half of the season, he barely played, really. Mm. He was adjusting to the training. He was adjusting to the new league. And it felt like someone had almost got through that hard part. And then through the second half of the season, we saw him become much more of a regular in the squad. We started to see what it was all about. And it felt like he was really getting to grips with the championship. You know, if you think of his role... I know he came off the bench, but in Serkin's winner at West Brom, you know, really prominent in that sort of sweep encounter. And so it feels like a bit of a shame that having got through that almost difficult first step, you can't then go on to the next one, which would have been a potentially really exciting moment issue because I think we all see he's an excellent footballer. Having said that, I think the other sort of aspect to it is that Mishu hasn't been a regular in the side. He's not Sunderland's player. We've seen... Pierre Equar come through in recent weeks and he's looked absolutely outstanding. Um, we know Jay Matete is going to be coming back this summer, at least for the pre-season campaign. And he is Sunderland's player and someone they'll want to invest in. And I think if we roll back a little bit to the end of the January transfer window and some of the struggles that someone went through in sort of February around the Stoke game, 
you know, our collectively, I think the assessment was that while Sunderland had a lot of very talented midfielders, the blend wasn't quite right. And it was probably overly on the technical side and they were probably missing that bit of balance, that bit of physicality. We felt there were too many sort of eights and not enough, you know, not really that cover for Corey Evans. And so in some ways I'm I'm a bit disappointed, but having said that, I wonder if we're starting to see a little bit of a shift to try and balance out those midfield options for the championship next season. And certainly from Mishy's perspective, when we're talking about a player coming from PSG, I suspect he would have expected to be a permanent fixture in the side by the mm. end of the year. And that hasn't quite happened. And then obviously the fact that Sunderland haven't won promotion, so it's another year in the championship. Is he kind of prepared to be a, a squad option, if you like, in the championship mm. for another year? I suspect that's not the case. So I, I think in some ways this is a little bit disappointing because you feel like you've gone through the hard phase of development and not really reaped the, the rewards. Um, but I do think if you'd said to me one of the key things that Sunderland need to do this summer is to get the balance right in midfield. Um, it's very difficult to judge Joe Bellingham because we haven't seen a huge amount of him, but I wonder if we're starting to see some steps towards that and, and that makes it feel a lot more understandable to me. I do find a, a fascinating little transfer story and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Edouard Michu only made 23 appearances for Sunderland in the Championship, 24 overall, so you're probably right in what you say. He probably wanted to have more of an impact. I find the Fulham thing interesting, Phil, just because thinking of some of the players that maybe can't get into their midfield all of the time, um, I think probably the best performance I've seen at the stadium like this season, arguably from an opposition player, would probably be Tom Kearney. Um, slightly different player to Mishu, it must be said, with a, a lot more experience. But he's struggling to get in into to Fulham's first team, starting Premier League games all of the time. So I just wonder where Mishu fits in at Fulham and, and whether they see him as a development sign. And, and just your thoughts on, on that link, really. Yeah, I think I, I, I don't see him... I, I find it very difficult at this stage to, to go and see him going straight into a Premier League eleven. Yeah, I think I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that we've seen that the potential's there in terms of his technical ability. And I think we did start to see towards the end of the season we start to get into grips with the physicality a little bit. Um, so it will be really interesting to see where he winds up. I don't see him going and being a regular for Fulham, like you say, when you've got players like Kenny who can't get in the side. But having said that, it's kind of what I was going through before. You know, we've, we've seen a lot of Sunderland where players have an up and down first season in senior football and then they can sort of kick on really quickly. I mean, Daniel would be the obvious example who was brilliant at times last year, ended the season not in a team. And this year, his development of his game has been amazing. So it wouldn't be a huge surprise for me to go and see Michu kick on elsewhere. But yeah, for sure, if you'd said to me at any stage, really, that his next obvious step would be to go to a team, you know, in the top half of the Premier League. I would have probably been quite unsure on that. But I think also the fans will watch his next steps really, really closely because I think there will be a sense. Missed opportunity is a little bit, of ex, little bit extreme, but I think everyone understands that this is potentially a guy who in four or five years' time, everyone could turn around and say, well, why didn't we pay two and a half million euros for him? You know, we knew he was good enough to, to sort of turn a profit on that and to realise that value. But I think it probably you also have to offset that thing, which I think is obviously true, that he could be worth that and a lot more with what this squad actually needs this summer to replicate mm. and better what they did last year. And I think one of the things we had this discussion a few months ago about Michu on the podcast, and I said then that I don't doubt it's good value, but it's all relative to what your budget for the summer is, because we know that Sunderland need to buy at least one striker this summer. Um, and, you know, and is the money best spent on another technical number eight when realistically Sunderland do have a lot of options in those positions in the number 10 role as well? You know, when you think about Embleton coming back as well in pre-season mm -hmm. from a broken leg, 
I do think there was a real need to add a little bit of variety to that midfield in terms of the attributes. Ek was sort of rising the last few weeks as a really encouraging start in that. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if, you know, Bellingham could be another piece of that puzzle. As I say, very difficult to objectively compare the two because I haven't seen enough of Bellingham. But, you know, I, it, it wouldn't surprise me if in a few years' time we sort of go, how isn't it a bit of a shame that someone didn't buy Michoud? But then yeah. also recognise that maybe, you know, there were good reasons for it. Um, and that as much applies to the player as much as the club because, you know, it's not just Sunderland's decision. Even if Sunderland had activated the clause, you know, Michu would have had to agree to it as well. So um, I think, yeah, my overwhelming emotion is it's a little bit of a shame, I think. But mm. I can also I can also understand the reasons for it. And I do definitely think that the balance of the midfield hasn't quite been right over the last few months. And, and, and maybe we're starting to see Sunderland address that as well. Yeah, I can see the reasons why, why it hasn't been activated and obviously if the player doesn't want to come I think that's a important thing but it, it will turn into a massive shame if in three years he's in the France squad and, and worth um, 45 million you, you did touch on it slightly earlier Phil but in terms of what this means for, for Sunderland's transfer strategy um, in, in the window as a whole there will be some rightly or wrongly that point towards this and say well the club weren't prepared to, to pay this little bit of money towards Edward Michu, which now is probably being prioritised towards Joe Bellingham. And there may be a few that probably wrongly um, question expectations, but to me, this this does seem like a, a mutual agreement. It doesn't really seem financial, and I'm not sure it's some sort of massive conspiracy theory that, you know, some lack, in, lack ambition. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, it's a, listen, it's a gamble in the sense that if you know, if Bellingham does arrive, you're essentially, you've opted not to sign a player who's had 10 months in your system and is fairly well integrated. Um, and you've taken a calculated gamble on the risk on another player who hasn't had that time, who you think can potentially exceed what they, they could have done. So it is a gamble in that sense. I think it's too early to assess the level of ambition that Sunderland have shown this summer. I think if at the end of the day, if Sunderland signed Bellingham, and then they also, for example, to invest in a couple of young strikers, for example, yeah. um, I think we'd all be pretty enthusiastic about saying, well, look, you know, we understood where the gaps were in the squad off the back of that ultimately quite disappointing January transfer window. We've seen some steps to try and correct that. So I think it's too early to talk about that. I agree with you. I don't think this is purely a financial decision, although I think that is part of it. Yeah, I think yeah. that there is a budget. Sunderland suddenly haven't, their financial state hasn't completely transformed overnight. Um and so, you know, I, I, as I say, I think committing what would be a huge part of the budget to another two number eights, if you like, would have been, in my view, a bit of an error if that yeah, detracted yeah. from investing in other areas of the squad, which could potentially happen. Especially in the context of the, the, the January and not having that sort of space in the squad and, and that those funds freed for a striker anyway, which, which costs Sunderland, you could argue, in the playoffs. Yeah, I think, I think the striker situation has to be the priority. Um, and certainly the Bellingham the Bellingham move is a strong indicator that there is a willingness to invest in fees this summer. Um, so I don't see this as purely as a financial decision. I think it's a reflection that this would have been a fairly significant investment for the club and it would have been in a player who neither party was fully sure whether it was the right thing to do. The player not fully sure if this was the right stage, the right next step in his career and the club not entirely sure if it was going to represent value for money sort of next season. Um, so I think that while finances will obviously be a part of it, of course they will, 
yeah. I think this is I don't think that's the primary driver of this decision. And while I think it's a little bit of a disappointment one in some ways, um, I can certainly see why 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 it's coming to pass. Indeed. Well, the transfer window isn't even open yet, and we've we've had some some minor drama anyway with that Edward Michu story. We'll be across all of that, including Sunderland's retain list when it comes out and any incoming transfer or indeed outgoing transfer deals. We're going to move on to a sort of season review. Uh, me and Phil quite like doing these. Phil, I hope you've got all your notes ready because I am woefully underprepared for this as usual, but I do have the categories in front of me. We're going to start with your highlight of Sunderland's season. It could be a moment. It could be, well, we have got favourite goals, so probably best not being a goal, um, but you get the gist. Yeah, I've gone for um, maybe a little bit of recency bias here, but I've actually gone for the, for the win away at West Brom. Um I just saw that. I thought the cocktail of that day, the fact that it was a win that kept Sunderland's playoff alive, dreams alive, pretty much the last day of the season, which just made for this unexpectedly sort of buoyant last couple of weeks and that brilliant day at Preston. You know, the fact that it came right at the absolute apex of Sunderland's injury crisis. Um, you know, the team they put out against a very expensively assembled West Brom side with, you know, one of the division's most highly rated coaches. The fact that they put out a side that kind of really didn't have any right to win. Um, and then the manner as well, coming from behind, having played pretty well in the first half, um, giving away a fairly soft penalty, and then fought back by scoring two brilliant goals, two sort of classic Mowbray goals, if you like. And the fact that it was the, the centre-back down the circuit popping up twice in the box. Um, I thought that was my favourite win of the season because I thought it embodied why the season ended up being way more fun than we had anticipated it would be because it, you know, as we said, it was a disappointing end to the January window. Um, the injury situation which just got worse and worse and worse. It felt like it was in the end just going to fizzle out and we were just going to say, well, there's a lot of positives, you know, a lot to build on. Um, and I thought the West Brom win, so many players out of position, playing in that style against a strong opponent away from home. Um, I feel that kind of summed up why it ended up being such a good season. Um, and that was definitely the biggest sort of buzz I had after a win. I think obviously the Preston one's tempting because it was just yeah, such yeah. an incredible 10, 15 minutes. Um, and that was right up there. But yeah, there was just something about that win at West Brom. And the Norwich one was similar off the back of the, um, it wasn't long after the sort of Stoke defeat, was it? So the Norwich one was similar, but I just thought West Brom, that second goal, you know, the one mm. little one twos, the movement, it was just amazing. Um and yeah, it set up that kind of grandstand finish to the season, which at one stage you've pretty much given up on. I've got a couple of little alternative ones for you, none of which are as good as that, but casting me mind back to the win away to Bristol City when Sunderland fans broke that billboard. That was yeah, that was good fun. I thought that was quite funny. I hope everyone was okay from that because uh, could have been some nasty damaged shins. Um, one a bit more obscure one, but Luke 9 on the final home game of the regular season, hoisted his baby up to the Roker end um, yeah. like the Lion King. That that was uh, that was good. What was my other one going to be? Oh, I'm trying to think now. It's it's escaped me. I think I think you know Watford away. You know when Bennett got that equaliser. Yeah, that was that was that amazing. Was, that was a, that was a good moment. I think that was a great moment for a couple of reasons. You know, I think off the back of the Rotherham win um, and the Reading win. It settled the club so much because obviously in the, in the aftermath of Alex Neil leaving, so much uncertainty, so much concern. And it almost, Mowbray's the start of his tenure almost built up from that brilliant win against Rotherham. 
to then that getting that point at Watford, who we all thought we were going to be right up there at that stage. Um, and it was almost just like, oh, you know what, actually, we've, we've almost got through this turbulence. It's going to be all right. You know, we knew at that point, I think, that the season wasn't going to unravel. And the manner that they got that point back, Mowbray chucking on Bennett, um, chucking on Abdullah Bar, who was brilliant. Um, and the other, other thing, underrated thing about that Bennett goal was that was the first time I'm Adam Roberts played together. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time we saw them pl- basically someone playing with two right wingers um, and Watford just completely collapsed because they were so good. So, yeah, that that's a great shout. I think that Watford one was a really great moment because it just sort of, I think it calmed, that little spell calmed everybody and sort of um, re-underlined that conviction in what someone was doing, which I think was a little bit shaken when Alex Neil left. Um, so that was another that was another real good day, yeah. Uh, the next category is low light slash biggest frustration. I'll frustration. I'll start on this. Actually, obviously, I think the biggest frustration has to be the two injuries to Ross Stewart, um, and then Ellis Sims being recalled. The whole striker situation has been a a massive frustration for Sunderland fans, and I think that culminated for me um, when you look back at the the season. There was a week in October. Um, Sunderland had back-to-back games at the stadium like Sunderland-Preston, Sunderland-Blackpool both ended goalless if we'd have had a striker for them you'd you know, do you and, and, and it's all hearsay for the rest of the season but who knows where Sunderland could have finished because we ended up doing pretty well without one Yeah, I think so and I think that you know, ultimately what we saw I, we saw in the aftermath of the Stewart um, the second Stewart injury at Fulham I think Sunderland coped a hell of a lot better without having that kind of natural striker um, for a couple of reasons. I think one, ultimately, although he had a tough start, I thought Geldhart got to grips with the role, not being mm. the orthodox number nine, but just his sheer work rate and his first touch meant he was made, meant to make a real fist of it. And also by that point, Ahmad was playing so well, so regularly. Yeah, yeah. He was able to, I think almost Sunderland got grips with, okay, and it did cost them at home. I'm not sort of rewriting history. It massively cost them points at home. But I thought in the second phase of that, they kind of got a grips with how they could win a game, even despite all these issues. Whereas and, I think you're right, those, those two and, home and, games underlined them struggling, I think, in that first phase without Stewart. And we'll talk about strikers, but suddenly we're still amongst the highest scorers in the league this season. They were, they were. And I, and I think that reflects the fact that they generally, certainly the second time round, they sort of got a grips with it. Um, but I think that it did still cost them at home right until the very end of the season. Um, yeah. And, you know, even though they beat Luton in the in the play, in the the first leg of the playoff, you know, that was a game that they won 2-1, but you did kind of think, oh, if there'd just been that option up front, whether to bring off the bench or whatever, you never know. So I think that has to be one of the biggest frustrations, the injuries slash not getting the deals over the line. Um, and I don't think it necessarily was, you know, a question of ambition or whatever, you know. I, I know that Sunderland were... We're trying looking, for example, at young strikers from Brighton on deadline day who decided mm-hmm. they didn't want to drop into the championship. Um, and they've ultimately gone on to play a lot of football under Roberto De Zerbi and might be in the <laughs> Europa League next year. You know, those yeah, are the yeah. Andras Nemeth, who we thought was mm-hmm. going to sign and in the end decided to go to Hamburg. So that's not saying errors weren't made. There were. I'm just saying I don't think it was an ambition thing. I just think it was almost uh, something and it's something that needs to be addressed. Um, and I think that probably led to the other the other low light, which was the Stoke game, wasn't it? Which was, you just had a team that was, you just had a team that was ill-equipped and to deal with, for obvious reasons, a a very, very fired up Alex (laughs) Neal's Stoke City. A shame that Grubbin came against them, to be honest. 
Yeah, but I, I think it was part of it. I think there was a tension in the team. I think there was a tension around the ground, you know, that fed into that performance. And um, it was probably a day that I think Mowbray admitted he didn't get quite right. He tried to sort of mm-hmm. double down on that sort of really technical style. Um, and that was a real low moment. But on the flip side, you have to, you have to then credit the team for the way they fought back mm-hmm. from that. Because that could easily have been the point at which we look, we sat here looking back now and going, oh, well, they just never really recovered from that Stoke game, you know, and the injuries got worse and the confidence ebbed away and that was the turning point. In the end, we're talking about it as a one-off. It's really, obviously, some of the issues from that game meant, you know, they stayed because obviously Sunderland still struggled at home. The draw with Huddersfield being a classic example. Um, so some of the issues yeah. still remained, but the fact that Sunderland managed to battle back and, and not let that come to define the second half of the season... I think it was a really impressive feat in its own right. No, I agree. Right, we'll whiz through these quite quickly. Favourite goal, Phil, are you going with the obvious? Uh, no, I'm not actually, because I didn't not. really see right. that goal. Um, right, OK. Until, you had, did you until, have a on the laptop, until, did you? And, well, it wasn't, I didn't have a great view from the press box at Reading, so I sort of only saw the second half of the goal. It wasn't until, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> until I, I saw the replay later that I realised why everyone was buzzing. I've actually gone for Ahmad at Wigan. Um, nice, nice. Because I think off the back of the obviously Sunderland won the last minute against Blackburn at home on Boxing Day, Ella Sims mm-hmm. winner, um, and that was a real high point of the season for me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then a couple of days later, to go to Wigan side. I know it's easy in retrospect to see what a disastrous season Wigan had, but at that point they were still very much fighting. A lot of their major issues hadn't really started. They were still um, being paid at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure they were actually, but it was certainly less severe than it um than it yeah, is than now. Yeah. Um but I think should, the should, should mention is, that um Wigan players have now been paid. So yeah, just, I was gonna just say to avoid careful. <laughs> yeah. Um but the manner of Sunderland's performance, the manner of Ahmad's performance, um and then that final goal, you know, the little one two with Roberts, and then he just mm-hmm. smashes it in from our it was just in the away end, which was full because you always get a huge allocation at Wigan. That was just such an amazing goal. Um, and at that point, really, ended, pretty much anything felt, felt possible. Obviously, that began to change when Stewart gets injured the next month, Sims gets recalled, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then we went through another fairly tricky period. But yeah, that was that was the goal that most just sort of my jaw just dropped and just thought, how, where on earth has this team come from? You know, I yeah, thought they would yeah. be competitive this year, but I saw it in a very different way. I saw it in a, you know, two up front, Alex Neil, quite direct, I think, really aggressive. And then all of a sudden, this brilliant passing team with Ahmad and Roberts, and it just absolutely blossomed. Um, and that, for me, was just that moment of, what a, you know, something's happening here. This isn't a, a, a battling against relegation. Something is really starting and it, to And it's, to it's not... Not a normal Sunderland team, really. Not something we've ever seen before. Like that, this brand of football is yeah. something I'm I'm very unfamiliar with. And if you remember, um, there were questions when Mowbray started playing Roberts and Ahmad, sort of side by side. It was like, oh, hang yeah. on a minute, what's what's he doing here? Like, and I think Ahmad embodied that, didn't he? Because he, you know, he signed some Man United, and you start going, okay, well, that that's great. He's obviously come for a lot of money, but he's not played a lot of football. Didn't work at Rangers. What's his position? Is that really what Sunderland needed? You know, mm-hmm. and then it was, oh, it doesn't matter. Just play him anyway. Just get, just get <laughs> just him on the pitch. Stick him on the pitch. Um, and I think, yeah. So that was that was a night that I absolutely loved, and that goal. And there was that brilliant still, wasn't there? Of you know Bailey Wright and Dan Neil just stood behind it with their hands on the head. You know, like <laughs> what is what has he just done? 
And that was such a fun little spell. We'll be in Christmas and stuff as well. You know, it was just yeah, a great yeah. time. Really great. That was probably my favourite little spell of the season, I think. Come back off the World Cup break, Stuart mm. being fit again, yeah. um, which obviously sadly didn't last. And he was banging in the goals. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a great little phase. And hopefully something that someone can get back. They can have that power of having those defenders and that big centre forward up front, but they can keep a little bit of that magic as well. That was sort of the... Um, it might not have been the best football they played in that spell, but it was the best they were all round as a team, without yeah. a shadow of a doubt. Um, and hopefully that's something we can recapture next year. I want to give a shout out to uh, Robertson's goal against Watford because that was obviously crucial quality, dying embers of the game under massive pressure at home in front of a sellout yeah. crowd. And it's un- just under a pr- brilliant, un- brilliant strike. Brilliant strike and underappreciated at the time because we all felt it was a game something that had to win. And yeah, obviously, yeah. C- circumstances came to define that it wasn't a game something that had to win. Actually, that point made all the difference. So it yeah. probably didn't get quite the level of love it deserved, but that was a stunning finish, yeah. Player of the season, Phil, for me, there are a number of candidates. Uh, who are you going for? I've actually gone with Jack Clark. I think that Good Danny shot. Bart was a, a, a very, very strong choice. I know he won the sort of fans player of the season, didn't mean nothing that was deserved. Tempting to go with Ahmad, incredibly tempting, because I think his individual quality was the, probably the difference in so many games. But I just think for Clark to play almost every single championship game, to end up across all competitions with plus 10 goals, plus 10 assists, I think it was a amazing level of consistency from a player where consistency would have been the big question mark going into the season. He was fit. He sometimes played wing back and did so pretty well. You know, he, he tracked back and got stuck in. I think the level of consistency he produced over the course of the season for a player in a position that you would normally say, oh, well, they'll go through little spells and yeah, they'll they'll sort of go through little spells where they burn out a little bit. And for him to just relentlessly do it three times a week for over the full course of the season, um, I thought it was amazing, really. And mm-hmm. I think he's the one player who's taped for me. I think you could put Dan Neal in this category because of the way he's adjusted his role. But for me, he's the player I think has taken the biggest step forward this season. He's gone from you know, a potentially talented winger who can do something special to someone who's effective, seriously effective and productive every single game. I think that's a hell of a feat. Um, and so I think, I think it's that consistency and that durability is why I think he probably deserves it um, for me anyway. It's it's interesting the Clark thing as well, just very very quickly because we've talked about them there, but Robertson and Mad, it's all been about. Robertson and Mad Clark's had his praise and rightly so, but a lot of the talk, a lot of the discussion in tactical analysis has been Roberts and Ahmad play together and does that hinder Geld Hart and Clark? Well, it can't have hindered Clark that much because he's got 23 goal contributions. Yeah, he's maybe benefited from it at times. Maybe he's benefited from the fact that teams have been so worried about doubling up on Ahmad and Roberts, but you're right, you know, he, he doesn't get the level of Sunderland, you know, he doesn't get a huge amount of support from his his fullback on that other side because naturally they have to be quite defensively minded to compensate mm. for the fact that you're playing with two right wingers. Um, but yeah, I think his ball carrying ability, his end product, which is still a work in progress, but has improved immensely. Um, fantastic season, and absolutely no surprise that Premier League teams are, are sort of looking at him because I've not seen any left wingers in this division who've performed with his consistency this season. Um, it's immense credit to him. And a brilliant bit of business because they, oh, they didn't spend 10 million on him. Let me tell you that. I'm <laughs> no, not even no sure they spent one, 1 million on him up front. Um, and sure, yeah, it'll be sell-ons and 
um, bonus clubs and stuff. But let me tell you, that is one of the bargains of the season. Even if the Sky Sports ticker thing said it was ten million, trust yeah, me, not... it wasn't. That was what that was one of the bargains of the season. That no, absolutely. So Jack Clark for your player of the season. Um... I agree, but could have easily gone with Danny Bath or Ahmad Diallo. We'll move on to young player of the season next, Phil. Really hard to do this because really they could all be player of the season or young player of the season. <laughs> such is the way <clears throat> such is the way squad goes. I went with Trey Hume in the end though. Good job. Because shot, I yeah. think if you if you track his development from not really getting in the team at the start of the season to becoming this cult hero for being this throwback right back who crunched into challenges. Wins loads of headers, even though he's not that tall. That and tackle against McLean, of... I forgot about that tackle against McLean. At yeah. Wigan. It was just yeah. such quality, to be honest. It's such a quality tackle. But then from that platform to build in these little bits of his game where Mowbray is asking him to pop up in midfield and he's sort of playing as a, you know, the Philip Larm role. Um, you know, I think he's had an amazing season. And it's got to the point now where if the first game of the season next year, Trey Hume's not in the team, we're all going to be going, what's happened there? It would be a yeah. massive shock. That's an incredible pace of development in a short space of time. And I think his level of consistency is similar to the Clark thing, really. I can't tell you when he's had a bad game, really, over the last six months. Um, another unbelievable find, really. Um, and Lindfield I think he's been fantastic. Linfield yeah. for a couple of hundred thousand pounds. It's, it's, it's amazing, really. And, and then moving into, into centre-back, as you, as you mentioned as well. Very impressive. I think because I would have gone with Bath for the player of the season, I'd probably go with Ahmad for the young player of the season. But we've um, we've been through that. So let me have a look what is next on our little list. Um, give me a second. Right. So player you want to see more of next season. I'll start on this. I think there's there's actually three. Bennett I would like to see more of next season. Obviously Lahaji. And surely because he's really turned on the quality, I'm really, really, really looking forward to seeing more of Pierre Equa. Yeah, I think Equa is the one who springs to mind in terms of if he can build on what he started to show in the last few weeks of the season, then we've potentially got a really exciting prospect on our hands. Um, one of the nicest footballers I've ever interviewed as well. So um, really hoping he can kick on from that. I think, you know, for me, Lahaji was the obvious one in terms of if, you, if we look at what Sunderland have done so well in the last sort of 18 months, it's been almost finding those players who, for whatever reason, their career has gone off track a little bit and they come in, they put them on that programme, they put a lot of trust in them um, and they, they really kick on again. We've seen it with Clark and Roberts and I can totally understand why it hasn't happened with Lahadji just yet because the idea was Sunderland probably wouldn't be in the playoff positions towards the end mm. of the season and then we could rotate and we could have a look at these young players. But when you're genuinely going for the playoffs, how on earth do you leave? I'm not out of the team. Well, exactly. And he has just moved from France as well. He has just moved from France. So So it's a a big move. He was probably the one player who sort of missed out, really, because of the fact that Sunderland's season went better than anyone could have anticipated. Um, And so he's someone that I'm really keen to see more of through pre-season. There is going to be a major gap in this squad with Mm. Noah Mad next year. The one positive that I think you can take forward is that Sunderland now are going to be a seriously attractive destination for young loan players. Because yeah. I think Ahmad perfectly showed to those big Premier League clubs, we'll trust your young players and we'll play them. But they'll also get a real Premier League environment, 40,000. They'll get all the pressures that mm. you want to know if they can handle when they come back to your club. And they'll also get the exposure. 
So I don't want to be too pessimistic about it because I think there's a chance Sunderland could find another gem. But I do think the Hadji is going to have to play a part next year. Um, and it's going to be really exciting and interesting to see how he goes because his pedigree is huge. You know, he's not a he's not somebody um, who hasn't played at a particularly high level. He, he has got, re- albeit got he hasn't elite, played regularly. A, a league title under his belt, actually. Yeah, so he's someone that I think I'm hoping will be the the one who breaks through next year. Who can come back in pre-season, feel a little bit more settled in the environment. And we really start to see the best of them. Um, but I think Equa is the obvious one. I think everyone would say Equa, just because yeah. we all, after that Preston game in the first leg against Luton, particularly, we all just went, "Wow, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is this could be something." Um, so I think he is the other one who jumps out for sure. Indeed. So last one is overall mark out of ten for the season. I'll start with a very brief description. I probably go for a solid nine. One of the most enjoyable seasons I can remember as a Sunderland fan. Some of the best football. Didn't really have too many expectations coming into it, but to then to still be involved in the playoffs, playoff hunt on the last day, but then to get in and then to think that we might sneak a Wembley place being 2-1 up from the first leg. I think the only thing that lets the season down is the disappointment of the second leg, but that shouldn't cloud our judgment of what has been a really, really memorable, fun, exciting season. I mean, how many seasons have we had that have not been fun, memorable or exciting in League One? the Championship and the Premier League, where it's just been a complete slog getting turned over, um, playing rubbish football with players that don't really care, with a manager that you know isn't going to be there longer than six months. Um, but now things are on the upward fields. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, well, yeah, listen, I, I don't remember a Sunderland side playing this style of football to such a degree in my lifetime. It's been incredible to watch. I gave it an 8 out of 10 just because there were some obvious sort of disappointing moments through the season when you think of the departure of Alex Neil. Like you said, that real first spell without Stuart and Sims was a slog. I don't think that's been sort of negative or unfair. It was a slog. And we have had some spells like that in the second half of the season. But of course, all season has its ups and downs. I think for me, it's been the building of this fantastic platform with a core of an exciting young squad that can potentially go on and do something pretty special, I think, in the next two to three years. Um, It's been one of my favourite seasons. It's been my favourite season in the job by a a huge distance, although that isn't saying a huge amount, to be fair. I was going to say, your first Um, season was the Championship relegation season, wasn't it? No, my first season was the Premier League relegation. Right, Okay, then the Championship. Um, (laughs) Baptism of fire for poor Phil. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, it's been an amazing season, but the important thing is to build on it now. Um, it is only a platform. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed. It's going to be a fascinating summer, isn't it? It's going to be so yeah, interesting yeah. come the first week of the season when we do our preview podcast. How do we assess someone's business? How are the other teams who came down from the Premier League looking? Because they could potentially be fearsome if they get it right. Mm, so um, yeah, so it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see where our heads are at when we check when we check in at the start of the season. No, absolutely. And for all of that sort of analysis, head over to the Sunland Echo website. Shameless plug in there. That probably brings an end to the podcast, Phil. Thank you very much for joining me once again. Thank you for listening to The Raw.